Science is the great antidote to the poison of enthusiasm and superstition. Hi, I'm Juliet Selgren, and this is my podcast, The Great Antidote, named for Adam Smith, brought to you by Liberty Fund. To learn more, visit www.adamsmithworks.org. Welcome back. Today, on November 21st, 2022, we're going to be talking about what the current moment means for liberalism and institutions. I don't entirely need to define what the current moment is because I gave you the date, but we'll talk about all of the factors that get into this current moment, and we'll talk about liberalism and, of course, whatever institutions we're talking about. Um, I'm excited to welcome Dan Rothschild. He's the executive director of the Mercatus Center at George Mason University, and He's like the right person to talk to about this. He's in the middle of it. He's the executive director of a think tank, right? So he sees the scholars. He sees the public. He sees the changes in liberalism and the attitudes towards it and all of the stuff that's happening all over the place in America. So welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, Juliet. So before we get into it, what is the most important thing that people my age or in my generation should know that we don't? So that's a terrific question. And I'd say that the answer is to focus more on the stocks of pretty much everything and less on the flows. And I think that this is something that every generation has to relearn and focus on to a certain degree. But we've developed these technologies and and to use the words you've already used, these institutions, especially over the last 10 or 15 years, that really tend to focus people's energy on the new and the novel, not the tried and the true. And I'm not just making, I don't think, like a small C conservative argument here, but I think just as a matter of like probability, the best song or album for you to listen to, the best book for you to read, the best kind of anything is not likely to have come out in the last six or 12 or 24 months. But we have just optimized ourselves for seeing what is happening today, what's happening in the last hour, and treating that with a sense of historical importance that's just totally out of whack with how things actually operate. So don't look at just what's on the charts right now. Look at at the broader sweep of uh, what what humanity has created when making decisions about what to consume and engage with. I guess to bring a really um, my age, real world example to this, when you look at a post or at a channel on Reddit, you can click like hot, which is the stuff that's coming up now, the stuff in the past day, hour. And that stuff's okay. I mean, some of it's pretty funny. Or you can click best posts of all time, and that 10 out of 10 is the best thing because it's the most liked posts from the entire history of Reddit in this one specific area. And it always, I mean, it's like a natural filter. Obviously, like the old stuff is always competing with the new stuff, but the old stuff has this like cumulative aspect to it. So I don't know, maybe maybe that puts an image to what you're saying. That's a great analogy and and a great example of the the fact that we do we 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 can make you know relatively small modifications to our uh, media and research diets that can help us uh, they, they they can reap great rewards and and that's a great example changing the default on Reddit uh, can give you uh, much better information that you would get if you were just paying attention to what was hot at the moment uh, or what had come out over the the last few hours or days. And I don't know if Google does something like that or if 
or if you can change a setting or if Google just embeds that into their algorithm, I have no idea. I'm not a tech wizard, but that would be pretty cool. I mean, I'm guessing yeah. they already kind of do that, but. I, I, I have no idea how the Google algorithms work, but uh, appending Reddit to any search is a fairly well-known at this point Google hack to make sure that you get better results than you would get if you were just relying on Google alone. We're learning so many things. <laughs> okay, so let's get into it. What is a liberal order? What what does the word liberal even mean? Um, it's kind of this amorphous thing. So can you define it for us? I don't think that I can define it, but I think I can at least get us somewhat in the right direction. So mm -hmm. start with the obvious point that, that liberalism doesn't have one unified meaning. And the way that we use it in the United States or have used it at least for the last hundred years basically means what I think is better now called progressive. Uh, liberalism used in the European context is different from what liberalism means in the, the East Asian context, different from the British context. So... I, I, I think that we should focus on kind of what are the, the through lines of liberalism, not just as a political project, but as a, a larger worldview. Um, I would say that liberalism is a, a tendency more than anything else. It's not a set of orthodox beliefs. It represents a, a faith in institutions, uh, a certain level of epistemic humility, a commitment to uh, rights and to procedure and to an order that is based on rights and procedure. Uh, it has a, a large element in it of of being willing to let other people run different experiments in living to really understand what other people's points of views are. But above all, it's it's a tolerance. It's a cosmopolitanism. It's a recognition that in order to all live together, um, we've got to uh, uh, extend one another a great deal of charity. And And it's really important to like emphasize how much of like a crazy hack liberalism is that's just been developed over the last 300 years for people to live together. And anyone who's taken you know, a best basic survey course in Western civilization sees that the, the basic story through about the middle of the 17th century was that, that religion and ethnicity and a whole bunch of other things had to define the tribes that we were part of. And it was only when we began to develop this this technology of liberalism, that we were able to live together, that we were able to uh, work, to be in community, to engage with people who didn't look like us, didn't have the same beliefs as us. And, and so it really is kind of an amazing technology that we've developed. And those of us who are fortunate to live in the United States in the 21st century, you know, don't always take into account how unusual this state of affairs is by world history. And uh, it, it's kind of weird because if you think about liberalism came out of all those religious wars and people were killing each other. It was super tribal. I mean, you all believe in the same thing, but you're different sects of the same belief. And it kind of had this aspect of tolerance to it that essentially said you you can't be killing each other for this. You You just we don't do that here. And now it seems that we're returning to a sort of tribalism. Um, and I don't know, everyone talks about it like it's this new thing. And it seems like it's new in this current moment, but it's not new in the context of human nature and history. But what does that mean for liberalism today? What does it mean to be a liberal in the 21st century? I think the first thing that it means to be a liberal is to have gratitude for the extended order that's around us, for the social environments that allow us to thrive, 
And where this tribalism that you point to, you know, it exists. It will continue to exist. It will always be part of, of who we are. Sebastian Junger wrote a really good book about three years ago called Tribe. And he points out, you know, that, that everyone has a need for some kind of tribal identity. The problem is the liberal order doesn't give it to us. It's important to have these institutions of meaning. It's important to be part of something, but we can't expect to get that from the liberal order. And and that's really where I think that liberals part ways with a lot of people who look to find this kind of meaning from the state or from the larger collective. I mean, as, as we as we are sitting here, uh, we've just started the World Cup. Um, as a totally nationalist competition, uh, we're having 32 countries, you know, representing billions of people around the world, uh, going at it in a, uh, an appropriate way. We're not going to war with one another. Um, we're playing football games against one another and it's exciting to watch and it's exciting to cheer for your country and to, to paint your face and, and all of the stuff that goes along with that. And it's liberalism that allows us to channel this kind of tribalism that is innate to human nature into at, at, the the uh, least harmful and at best beneficial ends. I like that. So I guess I know your thoughts on the Olympics. I, I feel like people have such charged opinions about the Olympics. I'm like, let the, let the people have their sports. I mean, I'm not sportsy, but sportsy, athletic. Um, but people like what they like. If it's it's that or war, I choose the Olympics. I cho- <laughs> I choose sports. Um, so. I guess, what are the specific challenges to liberalism that we face today and how do they differ from challenges of the past? And what are some of the challenges that have that liberalism has always faced? Well, I think one of the challenges that we see facing liberalism today is that with a decline in the ability of elite institutions to manufacture consent, as Walter Lippmann said, to develop kind of the acceptable parameters of politics, we no longer have some of the the, the, the key ways that liberalism has been instantiated in the past. I mean, liberalism has always been, to one degree or another, an elite project. It's been a, a project of elites that seek to uh, temper the uh, the 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 popular um, passions of the masses and try to to steer them in productive directions. But we no longer have the kind of institutions that we had 20 or 30 or 40 years ago that could really set the parameters around politics and really say that that no matter what people believed on an individual level, no matter how they wanted to vote, there were certain liberal norms, certain liberal institutions that we really couldn't traduce in that process. So that big challenge effectively means that we have to get uh, mass buy-in on the ideas of liberalism. We have to make people excited about, you know, procedure and procedure and process are basically a niche fetish among libertarians, classical liberals, and, and a small number of others. They're not the thing to get people excited. So we've got to make uh, an institutional approach to, to, uh, building society. Uh, once, uh, once again, you know, something that is, is dominant. And I think that that requires a buy-in from a larger public than we've ever been able to, to buy into, uh, in the future. I think the, the other challenge facing liberalism today is that there are actually competing visions of liberalism in a way that there haven't been for the last generation. I think that people are completely wrong to look at China and see that, you know, this is a model for how one could organize a society. I think that we, we in the short term, are seeing China organized around a, a very illiberal uh, uh, type of central planning and type of aggressive um, diminution of dissent. 
But I don't think that that is really the kind of way to organize a society that that Americans or really anybody in the West or, or frankly, anybody uh, in the world uh, prefers or should prefer to the the liberal institutions that we've developed over trial and error over a couple of centuries. Well, so why has liberalism had such a difficult time gaining popular support? I mean, the values embedded in it of freedom and prosperity, the stuff that we think of when we think America, apple pie, Uncle Sam, no other ideology has come close to doing that. And it seems as though at this point it should be super universal, yet liberalism is always, as you said, not super popular, kind of a fetish of the elite and liberalism is always on the defense. So what's up with that? I think that there's two real reasons for that. One is just that, especially for the last 30 years or so, um, it's been kind of uncontested, uh, aside from, you know, in the, the last few years in China and a few places in the Middle East and elsewhere. So it's just been the water that the majority of people on the planet have swum in. Certainly in the United States, we haven't really had to think about this a whole lot because it's just always been the thing that's there. And America defined itself, you know, for 75 years against the Soviet Union, against uh, uh, communism um, as a liberal democracy. So it was something that, that was really important to who we saw ourselves as as a society. And the second challenge to this, I think, is, is as I was saying earlier, you know, liberal institutions can't really fulfill the need for community, the need for um, value in our lives. Now, liberalism provides us absolutely the best way to organize a civil society, to have workplaces where, where we can do work that is meaningful and well remunerated, where we can uh, build families, where we can have tribes that we're voluntarily part of. Uh, but it doesn't provide us those things in and of themselves. And so without a state or an overbearing central institution telling us what we should think, telling us that we are part of the larger collective, it falls on us to build those collectives, to build those communities, those families, those teams, those tribes ourselves. And that's actually really tough to do, but it's really important that we do it or we throw away the entire edifice of liberalism. Do you think that people my age and my generation, are, are we more... Um, I don't know. Do we take liberalism for granted? Is that are we even interested in these ideas? I mean, obviously I am. I'm here talking about it. But on aggregate. You know, it's it's hard to say. Um, I, I do think that generation generational politics gets gets somewhat overrated. But I do think that there's a lot to be said for the idea that people are throughout their lives kind of enthralled to the ideas or to the situation that surrounded them at a formative moment in their lives. And let me give you an example of that. Those of us who were born in the late 1970s and late 1980s kind of came of age when communism was ending, the wall was collapsing, global poverty was undergoing its greater, greatest humiliation in world history. The, the last vestiges of empire and colonialism were crumbling. Uh, America was becoming richer. Um, countries around the world were being brought into the democratic liberal order, or at least onto its cusp. We were trading with countries that, that only years before had been, you know, geopolitical uh, enemies of ours. So if you kind of came of age politically between about 1989 and 2001, you've just got a mental view where, where the world is always getting better, where things are, 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 um, just always looking up year after year, where every problem that our society faces, someone is going to figure out an answer to. 
But I think if you fast forward 10 or 15 years and you look at people who were born, say, around 1995, some of their earliest memories are going to be from the 2008 financial crisis. They're going to remember the war on terror. They're going to remember American uh, uh, wars in Afghanistan and Iraq. They're going to remember the sclerotic economy of the 20 teens. They're going to remember the rise of Donald Trump. They're going to remember COVID. If you came alive or you came of age in the era between the uh, financial crisis and COVID, you're just going to have a very different outlook in the world than those of us who were uh, who came of age at a time of, of relative peace and prosperity. So I, I think that that people your age, people who are younger than me, have uh, you know every right to question whether or not liberalism is um, delivering for them. And and I would say that uh, those of us who, who are older have to do a better job of helping people understand what the liberal project is, the limits of liberalism, what liberalism can do, why it's so important, but that it can't give our lives meaning. So let's talk about the institutions that play a significant role in upholding liberalism in essentially the liberal institutions. So that's like your universities, your think tanks, all that stuff. What are they? Can you like talk about each one a little bit? How do they relate to each other? How do they uphold the liberal order? So I'd say there's a whole lot of institutions, more than, than I could possibly name, that are important to the liberal order. But even before we get to universities and think tanks and these kind of epistemic liberal institutions, I think it's worth worth looking at some of the other uh, institutions that, that I really think are liberal that we take for granted. And a lot of those are found in, in families and, and homes and civil society. Uh, you know, the, the reason that authoritarians typically go after uh, families and civil societies, because that's the, the place where, where people's, you know, spiritual nature, where people's sense of meaning is really rooted. And if you take people out of a community with their friends and neighbors and, and religious institutions, you, you, you strip them of that sense of meaning. You strip them of that tribe. And so it becomes easier then for authoritarians to replace the state as the institution of meaning, the one thing that, that we all do together to, uh, em- employ that, that hackneyed phrase. So I think that the most important institutions of liberalism are the ones that we kind of swim in every day. Uh, it's when parents are demonstrating for their children, you know, that we should, uh, they're demonstrating trust in their children. Um, they're demonstrating what, what Deidre McCluskey talks about as, as bourgeois virtues. So I think that those are really the first institutions. And then civil society, showing people that, that we can have voluntarily, we do have voluntarily relationships that, that matter for us spiritually, personally, economically, outside of our immediate family. That's absolutely important as well. But then beyond that, you go to the epistemic institutions that we more typically think of as the big institutions of liberalism. And universities are a great example of that. So universities you know, are, are really interesting institutions in that their industrial organization is pretty much exactly the same as it was about 800 years ago when the modern university was kind of formed. And universities have long been bundles of a whole bunch of different things. So just epistemically, they're supposed to be the place that uh, preserves the best of knowledge in human society, that advances that knowledge for the next generation through research, that that transmits that knowledge and forms the the uh, the, the forms a new generation of citizens through teaching that knowledge, 
And then they should make that knowledge and that information more applicable and more accessible to society as large. But of course, universities do a whole lot of other stuff as well. Uh, they provide us with a, a, a tribal identity. A lot of people are very attracted to, uh, um, you know, thinking of themselves as, as members of the community of their alma mater. They provide sports teams. They provide opportunities for assortative mating. They provide uh, uh, roles in, in local community economic development. There's, so there's tons of stuff that universities do. And I think one of the things that we're seeing right now in these liberal institutions is a big unbundling of all of these things. And universities are are having to decide, you know, where is it that they are going to go? What is it that universities actually can do? And and on on a, a real you know, consequential level, are they going to continue to be liberal institutions that are focused on process, that are focused on knowledge, uh, or are they going to become something else altogether? And I don't think that we'll have a good answer on that uh, for a generation or more. What do you think has caused this unbundling? I mean, some of it is it was never clear that universities needed to do all of the things that they were doing. Mm -hmm. So research, for instance, is something, you know, a lot of the, the best research that's being done, uh, especially in the, the biological and medical sciences, is, is happening outside of universities. But you see think tanks and other epistemic institutions that are stepping more and more into the breach. Um, I think... Part of it is just a crisis of faith coming from within universities themselves. Uh, universities are not, uh, in the main, as committed to the liberal project, which was always, you know, what Jonathan Haidt points out was for for, millenn for, for a millennium, that was their telos. That was the thing that they were supposed to do. And when, th when they don't have that commitment to the liberal project, they're kind of figuring out what comes next. And so it's not exactly clear um, what is it that universities are going to do? And when they don't have a, a real clear commitment, a real clear sense of mission, um, it becomes easier for them to just kind of unbundle and, and pay less attention to all of the things that they've historically done. It's also, I mean, like reading books like The Constitution of Knowledge, Jonathan Rausch, or shouting myself out, um, listening to my interview with Rachel Ferguson about classical liberalism and the place for civil society and solving a lot of the problems we give to government or reading her book about it, which I did to do the interview. And you should do too, everybody. Um, Rachel is excellent. <laughs> it's, I, it, it became evident to me that culture is super important in um, maintaining the liberal order. And this idea of liberalism and the kind of the culture of liberalism and like the no now I'm just kind of getting a little silly knowing that knowledge is important knowing that knowledge and freedom go hand in hand and that that leads to prosperity and happiness and all that all the stuff in the declaration of independence essentially that the culture of that is super important and universities for a long time had that culture and I don't know I see it kind of falling apart. You don't go to college because you want to learn essentially anymore. It's you need a degree to get a job. So you go to college or you want to take part in the culture of college, which is not just a learning culture anymore. And especially at a time in kids' lives that's so important to their development as people for the rest of their lives, it's I don't know. It's just shocking to me how essential it is. And to kind of see it, I don't want to say falling apart, but it is kind of in a crisis. Um, and obviously there's nothing that we can do about it unless I'm going to go create a school. Maybe I'll do that. But I, I don't know. I, I just don't know what I can do about it. You know? 
Yeah, I mean, and that's one of the the things, one of the reasons I'm optimistic about our current moment. So we are seeing like all of these institutions that are kind of of decaying, that are unsure of their telos, that that aren't sure about what it is that they want to do next. But you're seeing serious upstart institutions, uh, many of which we couldn't have envisioned forming, you know, 10, 15, 20 years ago because they're they're primarily virtual institutions, because they've got different kinds of corporate uh, uh, corporal um, instantiations. So I think it's really cool, like what the opportunities are in front of us for the creation of new institutions. So I think that in some ways, the biggest project of liberalism over the next year is figuring out or the next 10 years is figuring out which of our institutions need to be reformed and which ones can can be fundamentally replaced by something new and better. And and so I don't think that I think that the project of liberalism is not the project of conservatism, that we must conserve all of our institutions, uh, no matter their flaws, no matter whether or not they're fit for purpose. It's this this combining of the the kind of two different elements, the, the, the French element of liberalism with the Scottish or British element of liberalism, where we have to combine reason with the respect for tradition. But we're making new institutions all of the time. I mean, th- this conversation that we're having right now, uh, 15 years ago, podcasts didn't exist. Uh, five or six or seven years ago, they were kind of niche things. I mean, now we've got podcasts that literally make news cycles, sometimes for days on end. So you've got a, a mainstream media, a legacy media that, that you know, for weeks uh, spilled, spilled, you know, thousands of barrels of digital ink over what was being discussed on the Joe Rogan podcast. And so in terms of creating new institutions, I'm not saying that the Joe Rogan podcast is good or bad, but it is something that m- informs millions of Americans. It's something with an enormous reach. So we do see this, these new kinds of institutions that are, are being created. And I think that we're able to experiment with them in, in real time and try things that legacy institutions never would have been able to. So I'm excited about kind of the opportunities of the future for that reason. Your optimism is rubbing off on me. Um, I think this is the best time to ask this. What exactly is an institution? Like, everyone kind of engages in this talk about institutions, but a podcast is an institution. Can you define that for us a little bit? Yeah, I mean, I don't have like one. I'll admit that the use of the word institutions is a a little bit of a dodge. But I think it basically means the the habits, the behaviors, the corporal entities that instantiate these ideas and behaviors across society. And so we can see like universities as institutions, but we see families as institutions. We see sets of ideas as institutions. There's a whole lot that falls under the umbrella of institutions. But I think that the the way that, the, that, in, that they look going forward is going to be somewhat different than they are in the past. So that two people having a conversation over a mic that's listened to by others, um, that does create a, a kind of institution. There are podcasts out there that, that help drive news that, that really make a big difference in the way that people see the world. So those are epistemic institutions. That's a, that's a good way to put it. I think about it often in terms of econ, the way we learn about it in like intro macro, where it's like institutions, like in terms of the solo growth model, institutions are necessary for economic growth. That's like stable prices. And you're, you have trust in the rule of law and all these other things. And it's, it's kind of seems like this weird mixed bag of random stuff, but it kind of spreads across this spectrum from like, it's a physical place to its kind of it's the way you eat your dinner and the way you like pick up your fork and like table manners. Um, Everything makes, I don't know, maybe that's too big of a spectrum. I don't know. Uh, 
It's it's one of these things where you almost know it when you don't see it. You know what yeah. a society looks like with weak institutional capabilities. Yeah. And 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 a lot of institutions are are just about solving collective action problems, uh about solving information asymmetries. Uh they about solving governance problems. They they're they're kind of the middle layer of society between the middle layer of 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 everything around us between the the individual and the the greater extended order. So they they help us make sense of the world around us. And, you know, uh, tribes are an institution. They help us make sense of the world around us, but they're not necessarily a liberal institution. So the institutions of liberalism are primarily uh, epistemic and cultural and social uh, in, in, in terms of what they actually do. So let's talk a bit about the institution of think tanks, because you know a lot about that. I mean, you know a lot about all of this, but you know a lot about think tanks. So, I mean, I guess first, what, what even is a think tank? Like the it, it seems so self-explanatory in the word in the phrase like think tank. It's a tank where you think or like <laughs> you know, but what what is it? What do you do? So I, I think generally think tanks play a role in society between kind of academic top-level research and the actual questions that are being asked or should be asked in public policy. So kind of the traditional way that we would think about this is that you know, people in the academy are, are doing important research on questions, and then there's an interplay between think tanks and the academy in terms of moving ideas back and forth. Think tankers look at research that comes out of the academy. They do some of their own. They think about what does it mean to apply these ideas? What does it tell us about society or public policy? Then they take those ideas and they try to make them accessible to policymakers. They try to, to inform the larger policy community. Um, some of them take more active roles in, in advocating for or against specific policies. And then individuals kind of yo-yo between these three different organizations. So there's tons of academics that have uh, roles at think tanks. People from think tanks go into the uh, into uh, public service all of the time. Then some of those people go back into the academy. So they're all kind of uh, the, the, the line between the academy and think tanks and public policy is not 100 percent clear. But I would say in general, think tanks are kind of the intermediate layer between academic work and the application of those issues. Now, that said, you know, think tanks mean very different things to different people. There's a lot of different organizations in Washington and London and Frankfurt and Brussels and in, in capitals around the, the country and around the world. They call themselves think tanks. And, and some of them are, are working on specific issues that are a couple of degrees removed from policy. Some of them are very policy focused. Some of them, frankly, are basically advocacy shops that they call themselves think tanks. Uh, but overall, they're part of what makes the intellectual world of the academy accessible to people who are making uh, decisions in public policy and in society more broadly. So I guess my first question along this line is where does Mercatus fall in this wide range of things that can be defined as a think tank? I mean, we're I, I use the word advisedly unique among think tanks, as far as I know, in that you know, we've got 612 students in our fellowship programs this year. And this includes graduate fellows from universities across the country, as well as people earning graduate degrees here at Mason. It includes uh, some undergraduates. It includes some early career faculty. I've also got colleagues that are working on applied research on everything from uh, artificial intelligence and emerging technology regulation 
to asking questions like, uh, how do we govern global commons around issues like fisheries and trade uh, when the institutions like the WTO that we'd relied on for a generation or more to, to govern and to, to um, moderate between countries have effectively broken down? And then we've got people who come to us through our Emergent Ventures program. We're supporting a number of projects that uh, were supported by um, uh, the, the charities associated with F2, FTX, which, which memorably melted down a couple of weeks ago, uh, that kind of come out of the effective altruism world. Um, and we've got colleagues that we support. We've got faculty that we support at George Mason and at universities across the country. So I think we tend to not just think about what the form is. We tend not to think primarily about what the form is of different programs and projects, but what's the function? What can we do to support people who are working on interesting ideas, uh, working on uh, making them accessible to policymakers and to the general public. Um, so in, in, in many ways, I think Mercatus is, uh, you know, what a university can and should be. Uh, and that's what a lot of uh, what, 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 what I talk about frequently with my colleagues, uh, like a lot of what we are doing as an organization mimics what we typically think of as what universities should do. Nice. Um, so I guess with the faith in institutions and kind of the disillusionment with liberalism uh, that we see people don't trust Congress, they don't trust universities, they don't trust think tanks. What does that mean for a think tank like Mercatus? What does that mean for the think tank? Um, Garrett Jones, who's a professor at GMU, has said that he thinks that think tanks are kind of on a permanent decline especially with things like Substack coming up, how do new technologies and ways of communicating and thinking about things, how does that kind of pave the way forward? Well, I, I see you know, two real lessons that think tanks can draw from the, the, the first couple of decades of the 21st century. And, and I've encouraged uh, you know, my, my, my fellow think tankers to, to really take some of this to heart. The first is we need a lot more epistemic humility. Um, think tanks have uh, tended over the, the last 10 or 20 years to really go overboard in terms of their claims to knowledge. Uh, this means, you know, in predicting the future, it also means that think tanks have weighed in on the rightness or wrongness of certain policy actions. Uh, and treading into normative territory uh, using the language of analytical positivity. And I don't think that that's been helpful. So just to take one example, you know, it was perfectly, it was a perfectly reasonable thing for think tanks to do to weigh in on the Brexit debate as to what this meant for the future of trading relations between, uh, the United Kingdom and Europe, what it meant for, uh, you know, potential gross domestic product, what it meant for other trading relationships. But too often think tanks got into the question of whether or not it was, quote, good for Britain unquote, to be part of the, the European Union. And I think that that's something that you can say from a normative perspective, but there's no positive answer to that question other than ultimately what the voters and what parliaments decide. But at the same time, I think that there's a huge, to take the flip side of that, there's a huge opportunity for think tanks as well, because we no longer have the kind of many of the intermediary institutions in politics that have been agenda setting as they have been in the past. So I'll refer you back to the 2020 Republican Party platform, which didn't exist. They the platform committee literally released a one page letter that basically said we still believe the same things we did in 2016. Plus, we really don't like the media. 
plus whatever Donald Trump says we're going to go with. So if political parties aren't actually setting agendas anymore, I think that there's an opportunity for think tanks and other liberal epistemic institutions to step into that space. So that's something that, that I'm excited about at Mercatus, and I'm, I'm excited about among the think tank community more broadly. So going back to what we were talking about earlier, as old institutions kind of fold, show that they're not fit for purpose, show that they're not able or that they're just unwilling to do what they have traditionally done to help order our politics and our epistemic lives, there's an opportunity for new institutions to be built and to step into that breach. And I think that think tanks can play a really important role in doing that. What do you think about the fact that people don't really seem interested in policy or the big ideas, but they seem more to care about politics and the stuff? Do you think that that has to do with more what the parties have brought to the table saying, we believe what we did before and they're just lacking in this agenda setting power? Or do you think that that's truly what the people want? And or what do we do with that? Because to me, one of the most amazing parts of liberalism is the fact that politics takes a back seat. It should not be the most important thing in your life. But it seems to kind of have taken a role like religion. You really identify with with politics. This is what drives you. Yeah, I, I think that that's a that's a huge problem that we have imbued politics with a couple of meanings that it doesn't have. So as we talked about already, we've imbued it with this sense that it should give some kind of meaning or order to our lives. Like we see that in the data on negative polarization. Both both Republicans and Democrats are not particularly excited about their own parties, but they are really excited about not liking the other party. Like that's the thing that gets them out to vote. So that's super unhealthy. But I think the, the larger thing is, is we've seen the decline of other institutions of meaning, other places where people can feel like they're part of a tribe, part of a team, part of a community. Um, in order to put politics kind of back in its rightful place, we've got to rebuild all of these other institutions. So like we can't really have a future where politics is back to kind of uh, within the, the the liberal bounds unless people feel like they can find a sense of meaning in a bunch of other uh, institutions as well. And, and, and I think that that, um, uh, you know, I, I think about the, the, the place where I um, uh, I I. I I, I wrote last summer about my my daughter's swim team and about how um, it's a place where all of the parents who are there volunteering are there to do the job and they do the one thing that they're supposed to do and they do it well because we're just trying to have a good summer for the kids. They're there to learn to swim. They're there to learn sportsmanship. We're not talking about gender ideology. We're not talking about tax cuts. We don't have uh, ESG mandates that we put on the construction of, of teams. Um, we're not doing diversity hiring among lifeguards. Uh, we're there for one purpose. We do that thing and we try to do it well. So more institutions like this that really fit to, that stick to what is their one purpose and not get engaged with all of these other ancillary institutions or all of these other ancillary goals. I think another big part of this, though, is that we've got to relearn pluralism. And that means that we are going to have deep divides across people. Uh, we've got to be able to live together. And we see part of the nationalization of our politics comes from the fact that, you know, in the age of Twitter and Instagram and TikTok and everything else, some crazy thing that is done by the San Francisco school board or some crazy thing that's done by a, a small uh, school district in Tennessee can immediately become this national flashpoint and does become this national flashpoint. So, we're fighting political battles 
uh, in the public sphere, in our action, interactions with other people. I mean, in some cases, over the Thanksgiving table with policies that are made by and for and apply only to people who in some cases live thousands of miles away from us. Uh, and that's just completely antithetical to the idea of liberalism, uh, which is that we should be focused on the, the policies and, and the, the institutions that actually affect us, not living negatively, vicariously through decisions that are being made hundreds or thousands of miles away. So we've got to get serious about rebuilding these civil society institutions. We've got to get serious about being sure that people have opportunities to find meaning and tribe and community in their lives. And we've got to get serious about actual pluralism. Yes. I have one last question for you. Yeah. What is one thing that you believed at one time in your life that you later changed your position on and why? So that is such a great question. And, and I was thinking through all of the different things that I've changed my mind on. Uh, but I think the one that, that really sticks with me is the importance of words and rhetoric, not just arguments and data. You know, for a long time, I kind of had, I guess, an economistic mental model of the world where I believed that people really could just be brought along to what I consider to be, you know, the right views on things. If you give them enough data, if you give them the right kinds of arguments. And, and I guess my like, uh, hardcore libertarian side wanted to ignore the fact that that the rhetoric coming from presidents like Ronald Reagan and Bill Clinton were really important in building those kinds of constituencies and institutions. And I think that there's a couple of things that really changed my mind on that. The, the first is a lot of the work that's been done by Deidre McCloskey and others that looks at the role that rhetoric plays, that that words play in promoting liberal values, in recognizing that 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 liberalism and the institutions of liberalism don't just rely on facts and reason and data and argumentation. Uh, they rely on on words. They, that's what actually affects people. That's what actually moves people. And and I think that we've also seen over the last few years. I don't want to sound like I'm uh, 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 praising the the good old days because we never really did have like good old days of refined political discourse. But just the the sheer quality and the negativity of the discourse over the last few years, I think provides a huge opportunity for people and organizations and universities and think tanks and intellectuals and scholars to make a positive case for liberalism based on a better view of the world. The entire rhetoric of our politics for years now has been negative in its nature. It's been zero sum in its nature. It's been the idea that if one identity group has something, that's something that another identity group can't get. And I think that we have to, to you know, once again, have a positive vision of society, of where things can go. And I think that that's absolutely critical for, for rebuilding liberalism for a new generation. And the only way that we're going to be able to do that is, yes, arguments and data and facts and logic are important, but words and rhetoric are just as, if not more important in that process. Once again, I'd like to thank my guests for their time and insight. And I'd like to thank you for listening to The Great Antidote podcast. The Great Antidote is sound engineered by Rich Goyette. If you have any questions, any guests or topic recommendations, please feel free to reach out to me at thegreatantidote at gmail.com. Thank you.